Bring me all of your dreams, you dreamers. Bring me all of your heart melodies that I may wrap them in a blue cloud cloth away from the two rough fingers of the world. And that is what poetry may do. Wrap up your dreams, protect and preserve them and hold them until maybe they come true. Hi, I'm Kevin Larimer, Editor-in-Chief of Poets and Writers. And I'm Melissa Falavino, Senior Editor of Poets and Writers. And this is Ampersand, the Poets and Writers podcast. In this episode, we'll be hearing two poems by Langston Hughes. Plus readings by Tayari Jones, Tarfia Faisola, and the 2017 New Jersey Poetry Out Loud State Champion, Amos Coffa. And so much more. So stick around. submissions. Okay. I have a lot of thoughts about submissions. <laughs> <laughs> can you can you put those thoughts into words? <laughs> Use your words. <laughs> Use your words, Melissa. Let's articulate some of our <laughs> thoughts about submissions. Um, okay, so a question that I feel like we probably both get a lot, um, you know, via email at conferences and mm-hmm. I teach classes in magazine writing, a question I always get is, how much um, of what you publish comes in via unsolicited submission? Right. How I much do, of it? Yes. You know. I do get that question. Yeah. And I, while I can't uh, put a number on it or a percentage necessarily, I can say quite a bit. Quite a bit. It's, I mean, it's not. I, if you did have to put a number on it, it wouldn't be a high number. <laughs> it wouldn't be like 90%. No. But it happens on mm-hmm. a regular basis. On a regular basis. And yes. I would almost wager that every issue has at least one piece in it that came in pretty nearly every issue just I would as a say. cold submission yeah uh the march april issue this issue has one by jim solish mm-hmm. didn't know him nope um that originally came in to me yes and then i did not respond fast enough no, not in a timely manner which happens yep. i apologize but it does happen it does on our website we have submission guidelines and it says four to six weeks mm-hmm. roughly although i do also encourage people to follow up uh, following up, I feel like is a very good thing. Yes. Yep. It often gets my attention. Um, if I have backburned something, yes, and I get a follow up, it reminds me to mm-hmm. you know get on that. Probably and, not two or three days later. No, but like you know, a couple weeks yep. is fine. You know, yep. four to six is what our website says, but even two is fine yep. if it's timely. If there's some like urgent time peg, right. A week. Yeah, and don't be afraid to follow up because just because you haven't heard from us doesn't mean that we're not interested. It just means that we have a tremendous amount of work to do. Yes. And our inboxes are scary places. They're terrifying, terrifying um, dark places. And we, we manage them. I mean, I'll, you know, we manage them as, as well as we can. <laughs> yes. But there's a lot in there. Do you have any, uh, what, what's on your list of no-nos in terms no-nos. of submissions? Um, I would say following up by the telephone is mm. maybe not um, 
maybe not the best yeah. way to, to go about it. Don't pitch um, via telephone either. No, don't. Yeah, definitely not the like the first thing you do. Yeah. Don't pick up the phone. No, I hate the phone. I will be honest. I well, hate it. I like the phone for um, communicating with people that I am actively working yes, with. If there's totally. a writer that, you know, we've been working on a piece back and forth and we just need to like email is failing us out. a little bit. Yeah. Phone's great. Totally. If I don't know you and you just have an idea for the magazine, phone calls probably not the oh. best. And actually on our on the submission guidelines on the website it says no telephone it calls. It does say that. Also, it's not that hard to find our email addresses and I'll tell you right now, editor at pw.org does get to us. Mm-hmm. So that would be one one no in my book. Yeah. Uh, maybe don't pitch us via Facebook. No, Facebook Messenger is not <sighs> no. Not a preferable tool. Not least because I don't I try very hard not to look at Facebook. So I'm not going to see it. Mm-hmm. Also, it's really hard to for me to read that tiny little box. Right. Twitter is okay, though. If you, you know, DM, yep. send me a DM and say, I've got an idea for an article. Where can I send it? Right. I will send you my email address. I would say if you're, if you really need to use either of those tools, mm-hmm. those social media tools. <laughs> mm, bless them. I would stick to, hey, what email address can I send? Yes, that's totally fine. Yep. Um... I would also say if you send a pitch or a submission and I have responded and and offered some, you know, some level of interest, maybe that's just a, this sounds like it might be good. Here are my thoughts yeah. uh, on how it might be better. Yes, how, you have engaged the writer in... Yes. Yes. I, we have engaged. Right. <laughs> what that means is <laughs> Editorial that, process engaged. Yes. yes. Engage. Um, that means that I am interested and it mm-hmm. means that I am have some level of investment already. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not going to spend that time unless I'm actually, uh, you know, genuinely interested or mm-hmm. invested. So if I, uh, you know, send some notes and say, uh, these are some ideas for revision or even give it like a very, you know, brief first editorial pass. Um, in the past people have, it doesn't happen very often. No. But once in a while, yes. what has happened? I, th- I think I know. <laughs> Where this is going. <laughs> yes, I think I know where this is going. Don't send it over my head. Don't go over my head and send it to Kevin. Yeah. You know, like there's yeah. something about going over someone's head and sending it to someone else, which just. It, it, yeah, it's a little bit like, um, excuse me, your senior editor is. Uh, yeah, like, not... I don't know, man. <laughs> you trying to get me in trouble or. <laughs> it's not going to work. No. Oh, no. That just. No. Grinds my gears. Yep, yep. Um, Wouldn't do that. Similarly, if that sort of editorial process has been initiated, if we have engaged, and then you send it somewhere else, mm. I feel like, you Well, know, it's, not, it's not great. Uh, you know, writers have are entitled to send their work wherever they want. Yes, However, absolutely. However, that is probably a bridge. It sounds to me, <laughs> Melissa, <laughs> that that bridge... You know, took some some fire damage there. It was burned down. It was burned, it was down. burned yeah. down. So just keep that in mind. You know, if if you, you can do what you want, of course. But yes, and I totally advocate for people yes. sending their work to multiple places. It's just specifically when you have sent a piece mm-hmm. and the process has begun, yeah. because I feel like what has happened in the past is I've actually started editing a piece and then they sent it somewhere else and it got published somewhere else with my edits in it which is like whoa you just got all that editorial work for free right right. that's not good no that's not good and you're not going to work with that writer no i'm not 
Yeah. Those are really, I don't have many yeah. uh, blacklist level no-nos, <laughs> but that that's one of them for yeah. sure. I mean, I think that when it, when, when it works really well, uh, I think we get the sense that the writer really wants this piece to be with us, Poets right. and Writers Magazine, yeah. uh, because they value something about Poets and Writers Magazine above the others. Right. There are others out there. For sure. Um, yeah, when I get a when I get a pitch for a piece, uh, and the writer says that they are simultaneously submitting this pitch to you know A, B, and C magazine, mm-hmm. A, B, and C print magazine that also serves writers. <laughs> yes, it's not we're not starting on the right foot mm. um, there. I would mm-hmm. say you mm-hmm. have every right to do that, right. um, but I'd I'd kind of like to know that you know Poets and Writers magazine and. There's a reason why you're sending this to me. Right. If you follow up a couple of weeks later and say, you know, hey, I sent this a few weeks ago. Yep. Um, I'd really like it to live at Poets and Writers, but I'm also going to start sending it elsewhere. That's yep. totally fine. And in fact, I think sometimes that will light a fire under me yes. and get me to read it sooner. Right. Because I, th- I feel like you still want it with us. And, you know, then there's a little bit more urgency. Yep. Yep. Which is totally fine. Yeah. You got to fight for your rights, you know. And that's the thing, uh, you know. We are writers first here, mm-hmm. um, and all power to the writers. That's right. Uh, but these are just some some helpful tips from the editors of Poets and Writers Magazine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, you know, one piece that uh, went through sort of a prolonged pitching and then a pretty good. Editorial process, mm-hmm. um, extended editorial process, is The Poem Chooses You by Andy Hockman, right. which is in this issue. Uh, it's a really great piece. It, it follows three high school students in New Jersey who participated in the uh, Poetry Out Loud program, which is a national recitation competition sponsored by the NEA and the Poetry Foundation. Mm-hmm. And the, the sort of centerpiece of this feature is a student named Amos Kaffa. Yes, and Amos won the 2017 New Jersey State Poetry Out Loud competition and then got to go on and compete in the national competition in Washington, D.C. So it's a really cool story. Definitely made me cry a little bit. Mm -hmm. And we have a recording of Amos performing at the New Jersey finals from 2017. So we are going to hear that right now. Let the Light Enter by Frances Ellen Watkins Harper. The dying words of Goethe. Light, more light. The shadows deepen and my life is ebbing low. Throw the windows widely open. Light, more light. Before I go, softly let the balmy sunshine play around my dying bed. Ere the dimly lighted valley I with lonely feet must tread. Light. More light for death is weaving shadows round. My waning sight 
And I fain would gaze upon him through a stream of earthly light. Not for greater gifts of genius, not for thoughts more grandly bright. All the dying poet whispers is a prayer for light, more light. Heeds he not the gathered laurels fading slowly from his sight. All the poet's aspirations center in that prayer for light. Gracious Savior, when life's daydreams melt and vanish from the sight, May our dim and longing vision then be blessed with light, more light. So Langston Hughes is all over this issue. He is. It's great. It's Black History Month, Mm -hmm. and we kick off the issue with a piece about the I2 Arts Collective, which was founded by Renee Watson and provides programming for young writers in Langston Hughes' former home in Harlem. That's right. Um, Langston Hughes also makes an appearance in the Why We Write uh, installment by Stephanie Stokes Oliver. She writes about the anthology that she edited, Um, It's called Black Ink, Literary Legends on the Peril, Power, and Pleasure of Reading and Writing. And that includes an excerpt of The Big C by Langston Hughes. We also have a Q&A with Sarah Browning, who co-founded Split This Rock, which is a wonderful D.C.-based organization that works at the intersection of poetry and politics. And Sarah is leaving at the end of the year, so we have a pretty great interview with her. Um, And Split This Rock takes its name from a Langston Hughes poem called Big Buddy, which ends with the line, When I split this rock, stand by my side. Uh, That's good stuff. It is. So we have a couple of archival poems by Langston Hughes, and we're going to listen to those right now. I, too, sing America. I am the darker brother. They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes, but I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow, I'll be at the table when company comes. Nobody'll dare say to me, eat in the kitchen then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful we are and be ashamed. I too am America. Bring me all of your dreams, you dreamers. Bring me all of your heart melodies that I may wrap them in a blue cloud cloth away from the two rough fingers of the world. And that is what poetry may do. Wrap up your dreams, protect and preserve them and hold them until maybe they come true. Columbus dreamed of finding a new world. He found it. 
Elson dreamed of light, more light, and he made light. All the progress that human beings have made on this old earth of ours grew out of dreams. That is why it is wise, I should think, to hold fast to dreams. For if dreams die, life is a broken-winged bird that cannot fly. Hold fast to dreams, for when dreams go, life is a barren field frozen with snow. Tyari Jones has a new novel out. It's called An American Marriage. It's published by Algonquin Books. Tayari is a contributing editor of the magazine, and she's actually uh, one of the contributors to the special section on Writers Retreats. She's also a contributor to Craft Capsules, uh, which is a series of sort of micro-craft essays that we publish online. And we've been doing this for about a year, and we've got a really great list of contributors. It's uh, Christina Baker-Klein is the one who started it off. Uh, we have Sandra Beasley, Megan Stielstra, Wiley Cash, and now Tyari Jones. And one of the installments of Craft Capsules, one of the Craft Capsules <laughs> that she contributed, uh, is called The Scourge of Technology. And we asked her to read that, and we're going to listen to it now. The cell phone is the worst thing to ever happen to literature. Seriously, so many great fictional plots hinge on one detail. The characters can't connect. Most famous is Romeo and Juliet. If she could have just texted him, say, R, I might look dead, but I'm not, LOL, then none of this would have happened. In my new novel, An American Marriage, both email and cell phones threaten my plot. Here is a basic overview. A young couple, Celestial and Roy, married only 18 months, are torn apart when the husband is wrongfully incarcerated and given a 12-year prison sentence. After five years, he is released and he wants to resume his old life with her. A good chunk of the novel is correspondence between our separated lovers. In real life, they probably would have used email. But the problem, plot-wise, is that email is so off the cuff and there is so little time between messages. I needed to use old-fashioned letters. Their messages needed to be deep and thoughtful, and I wanted them to have some time to stew between missives. But who in their right mind, besides me, uses paper and pen when email is so much faster and easier? The fix was that Roy uses his allocated computer time in prison to write emails for other inmates for pay. As he says, quote, it's a little cottage industry, end quote. He explains that he likes to write letters to his wife at night when no one is looking over his shoulder or rushing him. So look at how this fix worked. You see that even though he's incarcerated, he's still a man with a plan. The challenge, though, was to figure out how to avoid email in such a way that it didn't read that I was just trying to come up with an excuse to write a Victorian-style epistolary novel. The cell phone was harder to navigate. Spoiler, Celestial has taken up with another man, Andre, in the five years that her husband is incarcerated. 
A crucial plot point, which I will not spoil, involves Andre not being able to get in touch with Celestial. Well, in the present day, there is really no way not to be able to reach your sweetie unless your sweetie doesn't want to be reached. Trouble in Paradise is not on the menu for this couple at this point, so what to do? I couldn't very well have him drop his phone in a rest stop commode. To get around it, I had to put Andre in the situation where he would agree not to call Celestial or take her calls. Although he really wants to, trust me, it's killing him. But he makes an agreement with Roy's father who says to him, Andre, you've had two years to let Celestial know how you feel. Give my son one day. Andre agrees and has to rely on faith that their relationship can survive. The scene is extremely tense and adds suspense to the novel. I had to get up and walk around the room halfway through writing it. I predict that future novelists will not grapple with this quite as much as we do because technological advances will be seen as a feature rather than a bug. But for now, you can still write an old-fashioned plot that doesn't involve texting or tweeting. You just have to figure out a workaround that enhances the story and your understanding of characters. One of our page one authors in this issue is Tarfia Faisola, whose second book of poems, Registers of Illuminated Villages, is out in March from Grey Wolf Press. She is the author of a previous collection, Seam, which won the Crab Orchard series for poetry and came out from Southern Illinois University Press in 2014, and she was also one of our debut poets that year. Like her first book, the new collection examines ideas of war, loss, and grief, this time with an eye toward memory, family, and destiny. So we asked her to read from the new book for us, and here she is with the near-title poem, Register of Eliminated Villages. I have a register which lists 397 eliminated villages, Kurdish villages in northern Iraq. The work is called The Register of Eliminated Villages. It's a very decorative, pretty thing. Kanan Makia, Frontline. Somewhere in this insomniac night, my life is beginning without me. In northern Iraq, it is high noon, the sun there perched over fields shriven with lilies, the petals of orange poppies red with the light that a gauze of gray sparrows glides through over sheaves of bone too stubborn to burn all that is left of those raised towns. A mother turns to a father in the cold room they share, offers her hands to his spine, I curl inside her, a silver bangle illuminated by candle's flame. I curl beside you, lay my head close to the vellum of your smooth back, and try again to sleep. Count to one thousand, you suggest. Count to two, three, as someone must count hacked date trees, hollowed hills paved into gardens, though the scholar on tonight's front line only counted each town destroyed, 397 of them. 
Who counts dolls, hands stitched, face down in dirt? Count to four, five, six. Count cadavers, stone, belongings, pots spun from red clay. Who will count the amputated hands of thieves? A mother presses a hand to me. Inside her I thrash, a stalk of wheat blistered by storm. Sleep comes, brief as it is bright. I startle, awake, turn to you. The register, I know, is real, fat with the names of the dead, elegant strokes of sharp pencil etched into thick pages. A father presses an ear to a mother's belly. I am wide awake. Count to seven, eight, nine. You murmur, turn to me. Someone must be counting hours spent weaving lace the color of moonlight for a girl's dowry. But I don't have the right to count hours, girls, dowries. Just the skin-thin pages of the good book I once cut a hollow into, condoms I stored there, cigarettes. Count each minute I waited for them to fall asleep. Count nights I sat alone on the curb, held smoke inside my mouth, released whorls of it into the air. A father leaves a mother asleep on her side, the crocus of my fetus nestled inside. I draw over us the thin sheet. A father reaches for the Quran, thumbs through page after illuminated page, runs his finger beneath each line of verse, looks everywhere for the promise of my name. One of our page one authors in this issue is David Tomas Martinez, whose second book of poetry, Post Traumatic Hood Disorder, is out in March from Saraband Books. We profiled David in the magazine back in 2014 when his first collection, Hustle, came out. Contributing editor Rigoberto Gonzalez interviewed him, uh, and you can find that online at pw.org. And they talked about the pretty circuitous path that led Martinez to poetry. Um, he grew up in San Diego. He was in a gang and was a father of two by the time he was a teenager, then enlisted in the Navy and played college basketball before pursuing poetry. Like his first book, the poems in Post-Traumatic Hood Disorder are autobiographical, and in them, Martinez explores ideas of identity, masculinity, race, class, and violence, and grapples with the lasting trauma of his early life. So we asked him to read from the new book for us, and we're going to hear some of that now. Look at homie, really look, a tertiary definition of devotion. Check the dictionary thicker than a Bible open on his desk. And it is a Bible to him, an A to Z gospel. It takes a lot of effort to truck paper and cardboard bound in leather, mended with tape from trolley to bus, work to the gym. And it takes a lot of effort to shift 
addiction, not easy mixing registers at Rite Aid, scooping vanilla ice cream, stocking boxes, or in class, unpacking carpe diem from YOLO. It's hard to sit quietly during lecture. Take the Greeks, their city-state gangs, slaves, and perfection of threes. Homie, don't see Homer in himself. Identity is the maze's minotaur. Hella easy to lose yourself. It doesn't seem like a big deal to accept Locke, nod at Jefferson, academic smile when you declare a life bent on beauty. It's like finding God, believing you might get a job. During Minorities in Lit, his last elective in undergrad, the third act begins. He raises his hand and asks when they'll read one book about brown folks. If there's just one book in his Eurocentric education that doesn't pivot on disenfranchisement, ain't about being less. It takes a lot of effort to reply, maybe I will, when the professor asks Flush, you're a poet, right? Why don't you write something like that? And that's it for this episode. Tune in next time when we will be talking about our May-June writing contest issue. Mm-hmm. And we also need to talk about the sticky notes that are appearing on my computer. Yeah, it's, it's becoming a thing. <laughs> they are filled with words that are not words. Um, yet. Yet. But I think we need to seriously consider adding them mm-hmm. to, if not simply this, our style sheet, uh, the dictionary. Right. Um, Turns out when you're dealing in words every day, uh, yep. you know that phenomenon where you like start to look at words and they don't look like words anymore? Right. Well, there's also the thing where you're like, why isn't this a word? It should be. These are these are words that should be words. Yeah. Um, basically, we've 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 reached the limits of the English language. <laughs> we've and exhausted we need to, it. And we need to <laughs> expand it. Mm-hmm. So if you have a word that's not a word, but you think should be a word, uh, send us an email, ampersand at pw.org. Yes, include the word, the definition of the word, and please use it in a sentence. Yes, using it in a sentence is key. Mm -hmm. Uh, We will take those and we will add them to our list and talk about it next time. On Ampersand. The Poets and Writers Podcast. Ampersand is a production of Poets and Writers, Inc., the nation's largest nonprofit organization serving creative writers. Ampersand is edited and mixed by Melissa Falavino. Music for this episode was provided by Poddington Bear, 
Broke for Free, Daisy May, Patrick Lee, Chris Zabriskie, and Springtide. Subscribe to Ampersand on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, or through our website, where you'll find photos, articles, and ephemera for each episode, including Piano Lessons by Jim Solish, Rigoberto Gonzalez's profile of David Tomas Martinez, and Craft Capsules by Teari Jones, author of the Oprah Book Club pick, An American Marriage, at pw.org forward slash ampersand. Thank you.